USS Enterprise is honored to have you aboard, Mr. President. Strange. Where are the musicians? That's taped music, sir. All that you knew is gone. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 20 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm joined by the mysteriously named Scott X. As you might expect from Scott, we were going to do an episode about Abraham Lincoln in space, uh, but then somebody <laughs> jumped through a big donut and changed history. Because in this timeline, we're talking about Harlan Ellison's original vision for the classic original series episode, The City on the Edge of Forever instead. Uh, how are you feeling, Scott? Any temporal pains? No, I think probably what I do need, though, is a dose of cordrazine to help probably help pull me through this, but I'm going to try and get by without it. You know, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. I love this show. It's really a, an honor and a privilege to be here. And before we get too far down the road, for the record, in spite of my moniker of Scott X, I do want to clarify that I'm in no way related to Charlie X. And that being the case, I have no intention of rolling my eyes to the back of my head, uh, erasing anybody's face or zapping them out of existence or anything like that. So before we begin, I just wanted to assure you and all those that might be listening uh, about that fact. <laughs> or Professor X or Malcolm X or, or, any, or anything like that either. Yes, but, but before we discuss this other city on the edge of forever, Harlan Ellison's, uh, as opposed to what actually aired on the on television. Uh, Scott, the fans need you to prove your Trek credentials with our usual quiz. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. What kind of Trekker are you or Trekkie? Uh, what does Trek mean to you? That's the first question. That's the big question. For me, Star Trek has kind of always represented a desire to explore to discover, seek out answers, and maybe even seek out new questions. That's what I always liked about is that sense of discovery, the pioneering spirit. With my love of history, which some listeners may know, I think humanity has kind of always had that. What's on to the next thing? What's the next mountain to climb or the river to cross? And that kind of feeds right into the whole idea of the final frontier. And I think it's it serves, for me, certainly to remind, remind us that we're all a lot more alike than we are different. We see a, a very, at least an attempt to have a very diverse cultural representation aboard the various ships, even though maybe it's not done as well as we might like, and even now later into the 21st century, as some of the iterations showed. Um, but I also like the idea of that, and that there's gives really a brighter view of the future. I also think from a more practical sense, this was the first show that I really watched that made me want to watch more. When I was a kid, I, I first started watching Star Trek probably in the late, mid to late 70s as a little kid. Mm. And 
this is the show that I really cared about how it ended. I could tell you lots of shows I watched, and they were just sort of on in the background. And one one in particular, I remember when I was a kid, both my parents worked, and they would my parents would drop us off. When I was not in school, um, we'd go to a babysitter's house, which I guess now you'd call more like a daycare. And I remember one instance of watching Star Trek, and I was watching a particular episode, and my dad came to pick me up. And I was adamant, no, I have to stay here. I have to see how this thing ends. Um, of course, at that time, I had no idea that episodes had names. It was just Star Trek. Whatever came on, came on. Well, it turned out it was um, the first, well, it was, it was the Menagerie was what it was. Right. And it did end. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so I didn't get to see this end. And then I, I got in the car and my dad, I'm telling him, drive faster, dad. And he's probably, you know, smacking me or whatever as I'm sitting in the back seat. And, and the whole, it seemed like an eternal ride it was 10 or 15 minutes. And I run into the house. I turn on the television just in time for the closing credits. <laughs> I never got to see the end. And as, as I know, you've mentioned this before, but I remembered I never saw the, the remainder of that episode for like six or seven years because of the way you never saw an episode. They just kind of threw in whatever was on. There was no order or anything like that. Finally, we got a VCR and we started taping episodes. Uh, me and my buddy Ryan um, would tape episodes. Star Trek would come on at 11 o'clock PM on Saturday nights. And finally, I got to see that episode. I anxiously awaited it. And then, like you said, it was a two-parter. And I still hadn't seen the end of it. But luckily, at that point, the next episode did conclude the second part of the Menagerie. So that was my very first, how do I want to say, experience with really wanting to see a TV show. And it kept me on the edge of my seat for like six years. So. <laughs> and even more, <laughs> if you think about it, because they, yeah. you know, they released The Cage much later. Yes, and the cage exactly. has the same ending differently, you know. <laughs> yeah, and and that was that was actually the, when I got on VHS tape. That was the first one when they had that whole collection came out. The cage was the first one that I bought because I I was so still so ingrained by the episode of the Menagerie. I wanted to see what the cage actually was. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's your favorite iteration of the show? That is it the classic series. I would say so. I, I don't think it's necessarily the best iteration of the show, but the question is my favorite, and will I joy? All the other iterations, to one degree or another, some more than others, the original series is really the one that captured my sense of wonder as a young kid, and I think that's the one that stayed closest to my heart. Right. And who's your favorite character from that? Well, not from, from that iteration, any iteration, really. Um, probably along lines. Again, I'm not breaking any new ground here, but I would, I would have to say that Captain Kirk is probably my favorite. Oh, yeah. I do realize that Kirk is a very flawed character, but I think I like him not in Bite of the flaws, but because of them, he'd seem to be governed by his passions and make a decision one moment. And by the next moment, it was more by a sense of rationality or duty. He was always kind of a conundrum like that. And I, that always seemed real real to me, that depending on the situation, he kind of went with whatever way the wind blew, sort of. Cool. And uh, finally, what's your favorite alien species? Here I am going to go a little bit sideways. And I'm not even sure if this answer really qualifies as a species or culture. Okay. But I'm going with it anyway. And that is uh, the androids in Star Trek. Okay. Through the course of all the various iterations of the show, we've seen lots of different androids, with, of course, data being ever-present in the next generation. But I was always interested to see how it seemed like they were depicted very differently and treated very differently. Sometimes you had ones that looked human, but were they very robotic. Other ones you had that were very robotic that didn't act human. And then you kind of had Data who aspired to be human, but didn't really look human. And then you had, you know, you just had the ones that looked human and acted human. They, they were sort of all over the place. And I, I think I had communicated to you before, I'm kind of at some point during this year, I'm going to do a rewatch. I'm going to go dig up all the episodes that had androids in it, in them, and then watch and just kind of 
kind of get my head wrapped around the way they were depicted and why they were depicted the way they were. Yeah, the original series has quite a few of oh, androids yeah. who think they're humans. They're you know they're not aware that they're not people. Right. Yeah, they've done, and, and they've some, done that a couple and times. And some that are. I mean, it's just they were all over the place in there. Well, you know, it's it's all about the software. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, today we're look. I, I think you've proven your credentials. I'm, I'm sure. Oh, thank you. I hope so. It's up to the people at home. Uh, yes. <laughs> but today we're looking at Harlan Ellison's original script for The City on the Edge of Forever, a script he's always maintained was better than the aired episode, even if City is widely considered the best Star Trek episode ever, you know, regardless of those changes. I don't personally agree with him that, you know, his script, his original script was better. We'll see where you fall, but to me, either Harlan is a petulant child who doesn't understand the realities of television, <laughs> yes, or he's not entirely sincere and it's been a way for him to market himself and sell books. And yes, uh, yeah, I think it's all yeses. And he, he probably would be the first to tell you oh, yeah. that he is a petulant child and he's everything else too. He's, I think he described himself in the introduction to this. The, the version that I'm looking at for this is, is the hardcover collected City on the Edge of Forever comic book right. from IDW. And in the introduction, he basically says that. He says that people think he's crude and he agrees. He said he's just was brought up to be honest. He says what he thinks, like it or not. That's just the way he is. And he has a massive, massive ego. And I mean, yes. And he would agree with that, too, oh, sure. for sure. So, yeah, this is the, in fact, yes, the, the script was published in a number of formats. goes to, to show that Harlan was, you know, making money. Uh, and the reference <laughs> we will use today is IDW's comic book adaptation. Uh, it was like a five-issue miniseries, but it was collected as a hardcover. Thank you to, on my end, thank you, Ryan Daly, for putting it in my hands. <laughs> and Ellison, exactly, you know, signs off on this. He's very complimentary of the adaptation. So, uh, written by the Tipton brothers, who really are the workhorses of the uh, Trek line at uh, IDW, and uh, with painted artwork by J.K. Woodward. Uh, and, and I guess if this is, you know, if Harlan Ellison thought this was what the episode should have looked like, give or take effects, then we can you, we can presume that, you know, it, it is the script. It is what the show would have looked like, the story would have been like, if it had aired as he, he'd written it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing with this show, too, Ellison, Gene Roddenberry, and, and maybe your listeners probably know this, as do you, early on in Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry was trying to get a lot of well-known writers to write for Star Trek to give it credibility. This was something somewhat new, and Harlan Ellison was certainly one of those young up-and-coming writers who had had some success and some notoriety. He'd won an award for writing an episode of The Outer Limits um, called, uh, what, what was that, The Man, the oh, something with the glass hand, Demon with the Glass Hand. And so Ellison was on the top of his list, and Ellison wrote, he was, and he was hired early on, he was hired in, I think it was March, he was assigned this story in March of 1966. And it went through a whole bunch of different, scripts and rewrites and story pitches and Ellison kind of wrote and rewrote and he went through several different rewrites and so I was trying to figure out which one he actually used and I think it was the one that he did that was designated by him as his revised final draft right because he wrote several drafts and this that's this is the one that I can come up with that probably is the one because yeah. he had a he had a final draft revised final draft then a revised final draft teleplay, which I think that's the one that this represents. Yeah, I think there is a you can I don't know if, if it's still available, but I think that he did put out at some point 
one where there, there was like six versions mm-hmm. of the screenplay in one book. So, uh, yeah, of course, of course it goes through rewrites. Uh, but then, yeah. <laughs> of course, it's got to be rewritten by the, the Roddenberry's crew at some point because the show evolves. And, you know, March 1966 is before the show ever aired. So, uh, he's, you know, this story, especially when you read it now, uh, as imagined, it doesn't work within the, you know, you're not writing in a vacuum is the thing. So there are many other episodes that it's got to fit into whatever else has been told. Uh, you know, Yeoman Rand's role in this, for example, you know, by the time they, they shot City on the Edge of Forever, she wasn't on the show anymore for right. personal reasons. And, uh, you know, Bones isn't in this at all. There's no McCoy in this because it wasn't clear who would be the doctor at this. You know, after the pilot, there's no doctor to go to necessarily. So once McCoy became so important to the dynamics of the show, it made sense to have him in the story rather than not. There are changes that occur just because of that. Yeah, and I think I mean I think that's one of the major changes was when they when they did the original scripts. Like you said, the assignment was early, so there had not been other scripts that had come in. They hadn't seen how the dynamic had changed throughout the course of the episodes as they had been. The previous episodes had been written and subsequently edited and aired. And I think, like you said, there were cast changes. Rand wasn't even available anymore because of her other issues. The dynamic had changed. I think there was also another issue that became budget issues that they had with how much money they had for each episode and what they believed what Ellison had written. There were a lot of things in there, and we'll talk about those certainly as we do the comparison, how that would have totally changed the budget and sent it way over budget. And that, and that was their thing, was there was a, a, a sense that what he had written was fabulous. They loved the story. But again, those two things was it didn't have the feel of the Star Trek that had already come before it been aired, and that the budgetarily they could not put this on screen. It's not even about effects. I think it's about the number of actors required. Oh, you know? yes, absolutely. Yeah. There, there was that. And, and they talked about there were some effects that Ellison had alluded to at one time that, you know, oh, that's BS. They had the technology to do that, which he was right. But the cost of some of that technology, and I have an example of, of that, would have been prohibitive. And like you said, actors, changing of sets, costuming, all those different things certainly factored in. Um, to the episode costs, they they overran by quite a whole, quite a lot anyway. Um, but they kind of persevered and made it work. As we'll see, they've they've collapsed a number of characters into like you know McCoy is is already on staff, <laughs> so right, and he takes over uh, a role in the story, a couple roles in the story actually. You know, Edith Keeler comes in earlier and replaces another character that's not necessary at all uh, in, right. in, in the context of the, you know, in the larger context. So that, that's just what happens. That's how television works. It's even how movies work. It's how adaptations work, uh, you know, from a novel to television or um, movies. So that's why I find <laughs> Ellison's griping a little, oh, come on, <laughs> you know, some, yeah. some of that. You should have expected some of that, especially with, I think maybe there's a difference. Maybe there's a difference in the experience he had with Outer Limits because Outer Limits right. is a standalone story with no right. recurring characters. Here you've got to you, you know you got to play within the shared universe. I mean I think that was always one of the thing and you know I don't want to put the cart before the horse um, but but my feeling is much the same as yours. Um, I think as a televised episode I felt there were things I liked better in Ellison's script versus what was televised and I liked things better in the televised script than it was in Ellison's script but I felt like overall I felt for television, the one that was televised was the better one. But I think you could take Ellison's script and with a minimal amount of changes, you could turn that into an Outer Limits episode 
And it would be great for an Outer Limits episode because if you could you could put it in a silo and not have to have some of the character dynamics that we became used to with Star Trek, it, it would have actually played quite a lot better in some of those portions. Why don't we go through it? Okay. Step by step or uh, sequence by sequence yeah. uh, of events. So uh, what happens first? I kind of broke this down um, into kind of ten, nine or ten different key points that were sort of the same. So at the very beginning, the first thing I put down was that um, and I, and I kind of com- ended up combining my first two points. The Enterprise arrives at a previously uncharted planet that is projecting some sort of chronal energy or radiation. And then the second part is, in trying to avoid capture, a crew member transports down to that planet. The star date was 3134.6. The Enterprise, following radiation to its source, arrives at a planet on the rim of the galaxy. The chronometers are running backward. A trope that we have seen before, <laughs> and I have thoughts on that. Um, Kirk's log states they have been in space for two years at this point, and the stress of their time in space has caused some of the crew members to go sour. We cut away from the bridge in Ellison's script to find a crew member named Beckwith. He's selling a drug called the Jewels of Sound to another crew member called Lebec. Lebec apparently is dealing with the stresses he feels by turning to drugs. Lebec takes this drug, reports to the bridge for his duty at the helm. The drugs significantly affect him, and he nearly, in his, how do I want to say, his drug-induced state, he nearly blows out the drive system on the ship. Spock tells him he has been walking around like a man underwater for two hours. Lebec basically has no recollection of these two hours. He goes back to Beckwith to tell him he's done with the drugs, and he's going to turn him in to Kirk. As Lebec leaves um, Beckwith's room going to the corridor, Beckwith responds by bludgeoning Lebec to death with a bookend, and this act is witnessed by two crew members. Beckwith managed to flee to get to the transporter room and beams down to the planet below. So obviously you can see there's a lot of difference between what we saw in the televised script, um, where the Enterprise is rocked by turbulence affecting the ship's performance. This turbulence causes the helm console to overload, and Sulu, who is at the helm, is injured and falls unconscious. Spock states that staying there is of scientific importance, and they are, as they are passing through ripples in time, and it's a great opportunity to study this. McCoy comes to the bridge to treat Sulu and decides on a low dose of a medication or a drug called Cordrazine. A powerful drug. He uses it and brings an unconscious Sulu back to consciousness. Once again, the ship is rocked by a time ripple, and McCoy is accidentally injected with an extremely large dose of the drug. McCoy gets loopy and paranoid, runs away. He evades ship's security and eventually beams down to the planet. This is one of the major differences in the script and uh, the original script and right. the final episode. There is a drug pusher on the Enterprise crew. Yes, and, <laughs> and, and this was one of those. This is one of those those things that that I always found interesting. When I first read that, I thought, what the heck is that all about? You know, obviously that was certainly at odds with Roddenberry's view where he was trying to promote this idea of a better future where humanity had grown beyond problems like this, where Ellison, in contrast, felt that any org- in any large organization, particularly in the military, remember this was written in the 60s, um, that there were bad seeds and surely there would be drug dealers and those willing to buy drugs to escape their demons. And he, Ellison felt this was human nature. So to apply this sense of humanity to the crew, this was something that he thought was a great point to kick off and, and to be a point of conflict here. Yeah. And it creates a villain because the, the, the story, as, uh, you know, as aired, doesn't really have a villain. The villain is fate. Right. Which I, right. Th- which I think is a stronger concept. Uh, I, I think, right. you know. In here, it's the drug dealer who will go back in time 
It's the drug dealer who will it becomes a danger. So there's someone to root against, regardless of what happens, you know, later with Edith Keeler and all that. As for this, I yeah, of course, this was you know this would have been the first thing that Roddenberry would have struck off the, the script as something that was not part of his vision. And and you know that also changed the ending in some sense, where Ellison tied this back together, and we'll see this in sort of the last segment. Mm-hmm. He kind of brought this idea back about about Beckwith being evil and they talk about this throughout the thing and how that how he ties that up which again is is very different than how the episode ties up in the end I think that there's a level of complexity that Ellison introduces in, yes. in the idea that you know the well, well no we'll get to it later but yeah there's an element of complexity to the the character of Beckwith that isn't necessarily explored in full but uh, raises the question and I think that's you know, that's the science fiction writer in him, the, the short story Absolutely. writer. Yeah. Almost like a moral. He, he almost felt compelled to throw some sort of a, if not a moral, a message in there. Whereas there there wasn't so much the message in, in, as it was televised. Yeah, not really. Okay. So what happens next? So the next part, th- there's this skeleton, like I said, that we outlined and how it differs is sort of how the flesh comes into the skeleton. So in the in the third part here, a landing party a lot follows the crew member down in order to apprehend him. And they encounter the remnants of an ancient civilization and a time vortex, a gateway to the past. In the Ellison script, the landing party beams down in, in pursuit of Beckwith. The landing party includes Kirk, Spock, Janice Rand and six security crew members. They follow Beckwith's footprints across an open plain toward these large mountains in the distance, and they see a city that sits atop these mountains. Rand identifies this place as the source of the radiation, and Kirk calls it what looks like a city, a city on the edge of forever. They move forward and come across six old bearded beings standing in what appears to be a gateway to the city. These beings appear to be around 12 feet tall. They speak, and they call themselves the Guardians of Forever. They say that they have been here since before, quote, your sun burned hot, unquote, and they guard the vortex, but they do not go back in time themselves. On this planet, the pulse flows of time converge and the flux lines of forever meet. Only here can exist the gateway to the past. The Guardians show the landing party the vortex and Earth's past. The Guardians explain that time is elastic and will resume its shape when changes are minor. But when a change is life and death and more significant, the change can become permanent. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. In the televised version, the landing party beams down in pursuit of Dr. McCoy. The landing party includes Kirk, Spock, Scotty, Uhura, and two security guards. They beam into the ruins of an immense ancient city. They come across a donut-like object pulsing with power that Spock discovers is the source of the time waves. It calls itself the Guardian of Forever, and it states it has awaited a question since before Earth's sun burned hot in space. When asked if it was a machine or a being, it responds that it is both and neither. It explains that it is a time portal and shows the Earth's past. Kirk postulates that he could take Bones a day back in time and avoid the accident. Spock begins to record history as it passes. Here again, there's a significant deviation, and I think, again, the budgetary constraints here really kind of came into play. Yeah, well, they probably could have done, you know, some sort of, have the, well, probably fewer than six. Uh, it's always like six uh, security guards, six, oh, Jesus. Right, right. <laughs> That's a lot of people. But, uh, you, you know, you could have had a, a more human or humanoid guardian sort of looking glittery or, you know. Some, right, you know. which they had done before. Yeah, sort of faded in and out, or yeah. Instead, we get the 
you know, famously the donut. Right. I, that's, that's how I called it earlier in the show, facetiously. But, uh, you know, this, this is one of the things that we like to mock about the, the episode. That's, that's sort of an interesting thing, how that all occurred, too. Matt Jeffries, who is the production designer on Star Trek, happened to be out sick on the day that they were putting all this together. So Roland Brooks, who was the art department chair, took over. And there, there were two things that he, I hesitate to say screwed up, um, but that he did a little bit differently. In the script, they had talked about, and in Ellison's script, too, they had talked about runes, R-U-N-E-S, Roland Brooks didn't know what a rune was, which, of course, is a symbol. It's more like symbols. That's what Ellison wanted, mm-hmm. these these things in the area adorned with runes. Right. Well, according to D.C. Uh, Fontana, <laughs> yes, Roland Brooks came to the dictionary first and came across ruin and assumed they had just spelled it wrong. So he made it ruins. And that's why you see these toppled columns and all this kind of stuff. And then he created the famous donut as the guardian of forever in this time portal. And apparently, uh, again, according to D.C. Fontana, Matt Jeffries came back from being sick and he saw that. And his quote was, what the hell is this? <laughs> so I don't think it was just the fans that, that kind of get a kick out of that. I do think it works. I mean, again, it's I it, agree. It's a collapsing of, of concepts because it's the Guardian. You know, it's the donut speaks, but it's also the portal. It's become iconic. I mean, it, possibly something that we'd say mm, kind of iffy. But then we're so used to it by now. You know, I, I don't know how much of it, of my love of it is just nostalgia. One of the things in this sequence uh, that, you know, kind of leaped out at me is plugging the, the title that Ellison does, where Kirk calls right. it the city on the edge. Because I don't know how other people think of it, but in the aired episode, for me, the city on the edge of forever was always New York. It wasn't the, mm-hmm. the, the, the city in ruins. It was the city that was on the other side of the portal which changed forever so to speak once when they went back there. right so yet yeah, to me that was the idea i mean the the title is more elliptical uh, right but in the original vision i guess it was always supposed to be where the guardians live i, I think that's weaker I, i agree no i don't know if ellison meant it to be a double where he he kind of hit it hard where he said yeah this is the city on the edge of forever verbally but also intended a more subtle city on the edge of forever being what you described, which I agree with. It's always irksome to me when, you know, the moment when either on TV or in movies where somebody says the title. It's always a little... Yeah, yeah. A little on the nose sometimes, I think. I have a couple other things here real quick. One of the interesting things, that never bothered me, the donut, when I first saw it. I never even thought that it was anything other than great Mm -hmm. until I read other stuff and what people said. And then you kind of look at it a little different, but it doesn't change my thoughts on it. But one thing I did want to add in here, there's always been that that sort of, uh, uh, how do I want to say, myth, I guess I'll call it a myth, that James Doohan voiced the guardian it was not jimmy doohan it was actually bert larue who voiced the guardian he'd and he'd done voice work in the gamesters of triskelion other episodes as well later on backward and and forward in the various episodes and i did like like you said how the guardian where they can collapsed all the vortex and the guardians into one thing and i did like how it responded that it was man or machine it was both and neither I like that. That just always has resonated with me. I always liked that. Amped up the mystery of the thing. Mystery. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's there's no alien person there. It's, it's what is this? Yeah. What 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 was this civilization? You know. And, and was something very foreign, something very much beyond the understanding of our heroes, so to speak. In fact, the Guardian says that, or Spock says something along the lines of, "There's no need to be cryptic," you know. And the thing takes a dig at Spock and says, well, apparently your 
level of intelligence isn't high enough to understand what I am. And of course, which gives an eyebrow raise from Spock, of course. <laughs> Koi has somehow changed history. You mean we're stranded down here? With no past, no future. Earth's not there, at least not the Earth we know. The crew member being pursued jumps into the gateway and changes history. So in the script version, Beckwith, in trying to escape the landing party, jumps into the vortex. The Guardians inform the crew that everything outward has changed, that the flow of time has been diverted. The Guardians are being summoned away by the machines of the ancients, which are registering traumas in time. Rand signals the ship for transport. The landing parties transport up in two groups because there's so many of them in this version. First, the six security guards go up. Then the officers, Kirk, Spock, and Rand. When the second group arrives up, we cut to this vessel. They are welcomed aboard the Condor, which is some sort of renegade or pirate vessel. Kirk is once again reminded that time has been altered. After a skirmish with the crew members of the, of the Condor, those that are still living or conscious, apparently, they take control of the transporter room and lock the pirates out. Kirk and Spock transport back down to the planet, leaving Rand to hold the chamber. In the televised version, this is really condensed here. McCoy tries to escape the landing party, jumps into the vortex, and disappears into what was, as the Guardian calls it. Uhura tries to contact the ship, and there is no response. The Guardian explains that all they knew is gone. Kirk realizes that McCoy has changed history. They are stranded in this place. And Uhura says that she is afraid. So this is this is one of those things, too, here where, again, you you and again, this is just my opinion. I, I don't mean to knock anyone else's thoughts. But the whole idea of the Condor was just lost on me. I never really cared about the idea that there was a pirate ship up there. I didn't understand how if time had changed, you know, what are the odds that another ship is up there that receives their signal on the same frequency that beams them up? And all that kind of stuff. I, I like the idea that time was was changed in such a way that there was no one out there and that the crew was all alone. I think it's more, yeah, I think that works better as well. Because the Condor is, I guess that would have been struck off the list because perhaps Mirror Mirror was already right. you know, planned. Uh, because it's the same, it's a similar idea. That there's a parallel. Time has moved on, but the Federation doesn't exist, but maybe it's a Terran Empire thing. Or maybe it's... Uh, maybe the humans are renegades or pirates. Or right. I understand it as a science fiction idea that Ellison would have thought. Well, okay, let's let's show that the universe has changed. Let's show a little bit of the history change because we're missing that in the proper episode. We don't know what the history is at all. All we know is that there's no Enterprise out there. Yeah, and all we get is a line from Kirk that says, you know, there is no Enterprise, there is no Earth, or at least not an Earth that we know. Right. That's about all you get out of the history from that. The one thing I did like in Ellison's version was that Rand was a formidable character. He used that secondary character. In the comic itself, the art was very good, where it kind of gave Rand this look of determination when Kirk says, can you hold this chamber? And she says, yes, I can. And, and I did like that part, that they gave her something to do, and it wasn't you know, just the trope of Uhura being afraid again, as she said in the televised version. Yeah, and as Yeoman Rand was often used as the damsel in distress or just right. the, the secretary or the sort of, you know, lame duck love interest. No, here she's a very capable person and uh, uh, she's holding down the fort. And we're supposed to be caring about this situation all throughout because it's like it's almost like we've got to redress history before 
Yeoman Rand and the, the guys get shot. Yeah, and there and there was a callback in a, in, a, in a little bit later yeah. um, when Kirk makes in, in Ellison's version and in the comic you can see it. There's like a cutaway, a quick cutaway where it shows the the crew members of the Condor opening the doors and and Rand and the other crew still trying to hold them off. Which I always find kind of silly when you know I watch a lot. Of I time, agree. Yeah, there's a lot of time travel narratives that I've watched or read. <laughs> you know, whenever it seems like there's. Uh, we're in the past, we're going to change the future, but then we're seeing another time frame where it's supposed to be a ticking clock. But if it's all undone, I mean, it doesn't matter. It, it, yeah, there's not a suspense there. It, it's sort of like that whole chronometers running backward thing to me. I've never understood that because I, I'm assuming they're just like clocks, and a clock is relative to the observer, not actual time yeah, why why is the uh, in the naked uh, time why why is the chronometer going back but not yourself you know you're moving forward right. but your chronometer is going yeah. maybe it's uh maybe it is relative maybe they're getting you know a, a wi-fi feed from some satellite out there so they know that yeah time outside the ship right. is moving back but they're you know they're anyway it's one of those ideas that doesn't quite uh, always work it doesn't so in this i mean this was an easy cut uh, I can imagine just it's a new set, bunch of uh, costumes, yeah, costumes, actors, actors uh, that we don't see again. So instead, we get something that's chilling. I think that's uh, you know, let's call up and no one's out there. We're alone. We're the only Starfleet personnel to exist, stranded. So I think th that really works. It's efficient and I think more chilling than what Ellison had written. It seems impossible, even if you're able to find the right date. Then even finding McCoy would be a miracle. There is no alternative. At that point, they decide that, of course, they need to go back into the time vortex to correct what went wrong. So Kirk and Spock enter the time vortex in pursuit in order to intercept the crew member and restore the timeline. In the Ellison version, Kirk wants to follow Beckwith back to change time. The Guardians say that it is more dangerous to try to unsnarl the knots in time than to let it flow on in its new course. And they say, you can't put smoke back in a bottle. They explain that they can't send the men back to the same time as Beckwith went to, but only before or after. They, of course, elect to go before, but the Guardians can't be precise about how long before. Kirk says he hopes they won't have to wait for years. The Guardians explain that in each time period, there is a focal point, something indispensable to the normal flow of time, a person or an object. Beckwith has tampered with that focal point, and that is what changed history. All the men will be drawn to that one focal point. They tried to describe the focal point to Kirk and Spock, and they say, He will see that which must die. Blue it will be. Blue is the sky of old earth, and clear is the truth, and the sun will burn on it, and there is the key. As Kirk and Spock jump into the time vortex, one guardian turns to the others and says that for all their wisdom, they are now helpless. And then, of course, in the televised version... Kirk wants to go back to set right whatever McCoy has changed. Spock calculates that they must jump into the vortex, but and he calculates the time when they should go based on the recordings his tricorder had been making at the time McCoy jumped in. The Guardian tells them that if they are successful, all will be returned to what it was before, as if none had gone. Kirk tells the others that they will have to go back in teams if they think they have waited long enough for Kirk and Spock. And even then, if they fail, at least they will be alive in the past. And that's that section. And this part, I really, I actually liked better in Ellison's script how the Guardians explained the focal point in time to give an impression of what that focal point would be. And I also 
liked how Kirk told the rest of the crew what their duty was, giving them his last orders, and wishing them well in the past if they should fail. As we'll see in the next section, I'm, I'm a little bit leery of, of how Spock came up with the idea that Edith Keeler was the focal point in time. I like this way. It was a little bit more mysterious and kind of gave them something to look for as they went back as well. I think there's more explanation of the science right. behind it, yes, uh, which makes perfect sense in, in, this, in this case. Yeah, and I don't miss it necessarily in the show itself. It's not something I, I'm thinking about, like, oh, does this make sense? It's not necessarily something I... You accept so much strange science in these kinds of shows that, okay, whatever. Uh, but it's interesting here to see how time works. And uh, it's, it's also how time works in the, the broadcast show, even though it's not explained as such. They give Spock a little more agency. You know, he's the one that he's sort of timing it. And it, it's not like, okay, we're, we're doing this on purpose. We're going back before on purpose. It's, you know, we're just trying to get there just behind or just before McCoy. It means Spock has a little more to do. And then there's that prophecy element. I think the, the Guardians with their... I mean, that's an interesting puzzle that they give Spock and Kirk to, to solve. It's all very Whovian to me. The, the riddle. About the, about the focal points in time and about how these points are critical and looking for this. And I, I'm again remembered to the something borrowed, something blue, that sort of mystery mm -hmm. thing, too, that we saw in Doctor Who. Of course, this was way, way, way before that. But again, I, I like—I just like that idea of that mystery a little bit. Something for them to do while they're back there instead of just hanging out and waiting. I mean, it's a strange thing for them to do. Why not just say it? <laughs> why do you... Yeah, well, that's that's absolutely true. Why is there a riddle? Uh, but maybe it's, uh, you know, lost in translation. Yeah, my, my understanding, again, having read... When I read it, and again, my thought was that they didn't know. They also didn't know. They knew there were focal points in time, and all they could get were impressions from the mm. vortex. It was not... Because they, they said that at one point, like, they could not be precise about when they sent him back. There was no precision with this time travel. It was only a sense that they that they got. And that was sort of like a vision that they had in looking back through the vortex. Yeah, I'll accept that. I'll accept that answer. But it also means that either there's something to solve uh, and then to, to realize, oh, crap, that's, that's what they meant. And that points to Edith Keeler much more, you know, precisely than um, what happens in the aired episode. This is a stronger part for Ellison, for sure. I agree. But like you said, and, and we'll talk about this here in the next one, but, but that also gives Spock, and I liked your word, more agency prior to them leaving and also when they get back, which at this point in the series, th that was important. They had to be the ones to solve the problems, mm -hmm. I think, too was why they made that change. The next part is while they're waiting or searching for this crew member, Kirk meets and falls in love with the woman from the past, Edith Keeler. We didn't mean to trespass. It's cold outside. And lie is a very poor way to say hello. It isn't that cold. So in the Ellison script, Kirk and Spock arrive in the past and they witness on a street corner this guy giving sort of this anti-foreigner speech. And Spock is appalled at what he hears, and he gives Kirk some grief and says, Is this the heritage the Earthmen brag about, this sickness? Kirk responds, This is what it's taken us 500 years to crawl up from. The crowd gathers and pegs Spock as a foreigner immediately and chases him and Kirk, and they plan to, I don't know, beat him up or kill him or whatever they plan to do. The two men escape, and they hide in a cellar. Spock and Kirk have a verbal exchange, really kind of a argument here, where Spock calls Earthmen barbarians and describes how his race, when they went into space in peace, while Earthmen went with all this behind them. Kirk states, that's why Vulcan hit space 200 years after Earth. Spock retorts, and Kirk says he should have left him for the mob. They calm down, and they find clothes there in the cellar, 
and they put them on. And in a nice touch in this particular illustration, they used the same clothes that they had in the episode to kind of tie it in mm-hmm. in the way that they drew it. A janitor finds them in this cellar and gives them work and, uh, and allows them to stay there. They try to get a tricorder to compile the list of likely candidates for who this focal point might be. They work for their money, and, and Spock lets this guy have it who is trying to rip him off. And we'll see in just a little bit, and that's sort of our next cut point. Spock's working, this guy tries to take more money from him. Um, in the televised version, Kirk and Spock arrive in the past. In order to look more like they fit in, they steal the clothes and they get busted by a policeman. Kirk tries to explain Spock's appearance by the now famous or infamous line where he says that Spock, when a youth, had gotten his head caught in a mechanical rice picker. They elude the police and wind up in the mission cellar. Spock deduced that time has currents, and those currents will sweep them to the place they need to be. Edith Keeler finds them in this cellar, gives them work, and recommends a place to stay in her building. Kirk, at this point, is immediately attracted to Edith, for now she enters the story quite a bit earlier here. And then as they listen and they meet her, um, they go to the mission, they get something to eat. They hear her speak of a better future and what she believes mankind's future is. So here, obviously, this interaction between Kirk and Spock is not at all what we have come to expect from these two over the course of the entire first season. And as I said, Edith enters the picture quite a bit earlier here in, in the televised version and is frankly given a lot more to do she earns Kirk's affection a little bit more in the televised version. Oh yeah, definitely. She, you, you can, you know, she's already she's a very strong woman. She uh, is very perceptive. She notices things about Kirk and uh, Spock. Well, that comes up later, but she doesn't know that they're from the future, obviously. But she knows something's up, and that they're different. Yeah, there's something, and so it makes her smarter than anyone else they meet, brighter. And she's also she's she has the message of the Federation already. She's already speaking right. like a utopian, which is what they are. So to Kirk, she's a you know a modern woman, contemporary to him somehow living in the past this way and so exactly. it starts to make sense and i mean there's the chemistry between the actors and uh, obviously the you know the, you can't script that it just happens but yeah there's there's very much something there and uh, ellison is very much more he's more cynical than roddenberry yes <laughs> and that's why a lot of these changes occurred because if spock is going to basically trash terran history because you know we, this this is this is the great legacy of uh, you know seeing that we have racists and I mean, there's a drug dealer on the on the ship, <laughs> dude, in in your yeah. time. So uh, it it seems like it, he's saying that humanity doesn't change, uh, that you can't entirely overcome these things. And the show keeps, uh, or his script keeps showing examples of how badly we treat one another. So whether that's the drug dealer in the future, whether it's the the racist, uh, you know, the the. I don't want to say white supremacist, but that's pretty much kind of it. And then later, how we treat our veterans. And it's very cynical. And hopefully, Kirk and Spock and all of them are a voice, and Edith Keeler are a voice against that, which I guess is the hopeful idea. But it still shows this, this dark undercurrent all throughout, which is part of Ellison's own cynicism, I think. That's, you know, that's true of all of his writing. Absolutely. And he, and he when he writes, when I see this, he's looking, as he writes this, very much the lens of the now in the 60s. He's using the science fiction of this story to tell a story about what he's experiencing in his life or what people were experiencing in their life at that time, whereas Roddenberry was trying to write a story about 
what we hope to experience in the future. It was just a different perspective that they were coming from, I think. This is also easy to cut. I mean, there's a whole scene on the street uh, with a bunch of actors that we won't see again. So Yeah, a bunch of extras and actors, and again, clothing them in a little different way, and exactly that you weren't going to use again. That was just budget money that I'm sure they did not have. And that's one of the the collapses that I mentioned earlier, where Edith Keeler basically becomes that janitor and discovers them and gives them work. And that puts them in proximity earlier, basically lets them have a relationship that isn't predicated on, oh, let's stalk this woman and then somehow get close to her. You know, it just, I I don't know how we feel about it, but it becomes accidental that they meet her. Yes. And then she turns out to be the the nexus. Exactly. I felt that it was much more organic in the televised version where... He happened to fall in love with this woman in the past, like you said, that shared his ideas and all these things. And then, wham, she was the nexus. That, that to me, is much more powerful than, oh, here's we find out this woman is the nexus, and, and I'm trying to get close to her, and that, we'll hear that in the next segment. He's just in trying to stay close to her to find Beckwith, falls in love with her. I just like the televised version a little bit better. Suppose we discover that in order to set things straight again, Edith Keeler must die. The next section is Spock discovers and or deduces that Edith Keeler must die if time's course is to be restored. So in the Ellison version, where I left off where, where Spock had been working this job washing dishes and this guy that was that he was working for tried to kind of rip him off and underpay him for the work he'd done. And Spock kind of let him know that he knew exactly how much he was to be paid. As he walks outside, he sees a woman standing on the corner. And this woman is Edith Keeler. And right away he notices um, she has this blue... Uh, shawl or wrap on and on it is a, a brooch that looks like a sun so he talks about that he sees it immediately and he goes to tell kirk at this point spock says they have been there for nine days so they've been there nine days and they have not met edith this was the first time they'd met her they watch edith um, closely and, dis- and kirk decides to get closer to keep an eye on her at one point, as in the other version, Edith trips on the stairs. But in this version, and, and Cisco, maybe you can tell me, I was a little unclear. It looked to me like he let her fall. He just looked at her and watched her as she fell down the stairs in the comic. And he, he made, like, no effort to – he kind of put his hand out, and then he pulled it back. Yeah, as if not And that's not at the to. very bottom of that page. And then mm-hmm. he kind of – she falls, and she's laying on the stairs, and he looks at her, where obviously that's different in the other one. And then Kirk spends more and more time with her, and then he eventually falls for Edith. Kirk and Spock at some point in a very well rendered artistically uh, in the comic book discuss Kirk's feelings as they, as they go along and what must happen. Um, at that point, Spock sort of calculates based on his tricorder calculations, almost the exact point of where and when Beckwith will arrive. Presumably it's the th- at the same place they arrive just at a later time. So Beckwith does arrive and he escapes from Kirk and Spock. They're sort of there waiting for him. And as they're talking, he appears and they go to grab him, and, and he gets away. He has a phaser with him in this particular rendition, as the other. And then they find him again, and he escapes again. So at that point, they enlist this homeless man. He's sitting on this little wheeled cart. He doesn't have any legs. And it, he's look, he's sort of a beggar, and he says, I fought at Verdun. And so they enlist him because he supposedly sees everything that happens in this neighborhood to help them find Beckwith. Well, then they find Beckwith again, and in their physical confrontation, Beckwith fires his phaser, 
and this little man jumps in front of Kirk and saves him, but he is killed in the process and evaporated. So at this point, we'll go back to the televised part of this. So Spock deduces at this point in the televised version that Edith Keeler is the focal point, using the equipment that he's cobbled together to access his tricorder, famously using the equivalent of stone knives and bearskins. And then Edith Keeler says a line that I, I love in there. Um, she's talking about their relationship. Again, very perceptive in this version. Captain. Even when he doesn't say it, he does. She's talking about Spock. They walk down the street, which incidentally is the set for Mayberry. Um, in the Andy Griffith show, they, you can see them walking by Floyd's Barbershop, if you look closely. <laughs> They're on the window. And Kirk, at this point as we go along, tells Spock that he's in love with Edith. And he says that Edith Keeler must die. That he has seen two versions of history. One in which Edith Keeler lives, and in that version the Nazis win World War II. And in another version where she dies. In this one, Edith trips on the stairs and Kirk catches her. Unbeknownst to Kirk and Spock, McCoy has arrived now in the past. He meets a homeless man out on the street who he examines and decides that he looks like an Earth man. And then this phaser falls off McCoy's belt and this little man looks at it and he shoots himself with the phaser. McCoy is found by Edith Keeler coincidentally or not so coincidentally, and he is nursed back to health. On the way to a movie, Edith lets slip to Captain Kirk that he talks and speaks just like McCoy. And Kirk says, Leonard McCoy? Yes, Kirk asks where he is. He tells Edith to stay there, and he yells for Spock. They see McCoy coming out of the mission and briefly reunite there. So in the televised version, again, not that I dislike it, but from a science standpoint, I'm not exactly sure how Spock's tricorder saw two different versions of history. I'm not sure where it's, where it's pulling information from, because as far as I was aware, he was only recording up to the point that McCoy jumped, but maybe he was recording after that as well. Yeah, it's uh, difficult to say. I mean, it's the technobabble of the of the show, which we've seen many times. That that helps just move us through to the next plot point. Right. Um, it's it's a little more tidy in the other one where he discovers who she is by the Guardian's description. But Beckwith seems to get away a whole bunch in in the Ellison's version. They they encounter him like two or three times, and he kind of keeps getting away. The other thing that I, that I was I didn't remember. And McCoy had a phaser with him. Did, did he take that phaser from one of the crew members on the planet before he jumped? Because otherwise I can't figure out why he was just carrying a phaser around yeah. on the Enterprise before he got injected and went down to the planet. But that phaser is destroyed. Right, because uh, yeah. he's holding it in his hand as he... So no effect on history. It's it's not like leaving it on Iosha or anything. So <laughs> Yeah, right, right, exactly. It's fine. It's fine. But yeah, that's the, a small... It's, it's like a weird little echo... A weird little orphan scene from uh, the, I mean, it gets rid of a phaser, but I mean, it's a little bit of what the, the, the original script had with the World War One veteran getting vaporized. There's just like this random person, possibly an unimportant person in mm -hmm. the scheme of history, which is how they paint the veteran. And uh, right. that, you know, that gets vaporized and it doesn't change history, uh, but there's no point to it. You know, it does. They, they don't talk about it. They don't make up, you know, there's right. no moral. In the televised version, they don't, they don't really mention it again because they don't even know. Nobody knows about it even. McCoy doesn't know because he's like unconscious or whatever at that point. And Kirk and Smock don't know because they don't even know McCoy's there. Whereas in the in the Ellison version, by, by the way, in the artistic rendition of this little guy, he's drawn to look like Harlan Ellison. They sort of give Harlan Ellison a cameo as this uh, little man from Verdun. And in that in the in the Ellison version, this the, the guy jumps in front of the phaser fire to save Kirk. 
And he also is described as being negligible later on in the story. And they do talk about him. And in the wrap up of the Ellison story, they, they sort of tie that up in a little bit different way. He has more importance in the story in Ellison's version, but not in the course of time. At all. And then, so they make a point of what is the importance of each person and, you know, that there, there's, there's a question there. But in the, the show as aired, that's not one of the themes, let's say. Right. It feels like, like this would have stung <laughs> if I were Ellison. That, that would have been one of the changes that would, I would have been pissed. They shouldn't have even bothered with it, cut it entirely. But I agree. But instead it's like this weird, echo, you know, a shadow of what it might have been. But again, you're asking for a, another actor, another who, you know, doesn't last long, who has to possibly be uh, an amputee or at least fake it. So it, it gets more complicated to, to use that character. And the way they wrapped it up in the televised version condensed the ending significantly, which we'll talk about. And so they would have had to wrap it up. That Again, when, I'm, when I always think of time-wise, I'm curious as to, it seemed to me, and I don't know if you felt like this, way but but there was a lot more stuff going on in the ellison script version and the comic book version than was in the show and i, I would be curious just to know how many pages it was yeah sub script and how they were to shoot it feels like there's a lot of deleted scenes in here yes that yep. could not have made it you know, onto the you know the time slot there's just so much going on or else it would have been so i don't know pacey you know some things need to breathe and it, i mean this section in the broadcast episode i wouldn't take out of the show at all you know bearskins you know the stone knives and bearskins is one of the great yeah. irritated spock lines of all time and it's not in the original script no and and let's face it you know that was one of the things that star trek had they had done up to that point there were little injections of humor throughout it to lighten things a little bit you know the head caught in the rice picker bearskins and knives there were little beats of humor there was none of that in ellison's script and that had sort of become Somewhat of a hallmark, even up to that point in the, in the Star Trek episodes that had aired. Yeah, and there's more, it's bouncier, especially between the main characters that, you know, like them. Yeah. So that's different. And I, I mean, I feel like this whole thing where Spock is trying to, you know, is scraping together money to get little tubes. <laughs> All of that, you know, works well. I mean, I like in the original script, I like that scene where Spock forces again, it's it's part of that racism because he's passing himself off as Chinese, uh, which is itself problematic to our eyes anyways. You know, the guy sort of tries to, to screw him, you know, tries to pay him less than than he's worth because he thinks oh he's a foreigner and he doesn't know how to count or he doesn't know the currency. Exactly. And uh Spock sort of manhandles him a little bit and forces him to give him the proper money so again this is this is what humanity was i guess that's the point to be made i, I like that scene i mean it's a it's a nice scene for spock but again entirely unnecessary in the greater scheme of the story and and of course when i was doing the the summation here i very much condensed this scene but again i, I really felt like in the televised episode this is really where kirk and Edith sort of earned some sort of relationship more. They, they had sort of, the, you know, people remember they sort of had these, the music sort of showing time passing them, walking down the, the sidewalks together and doing this or that. And in the script version, they, they kind of went out and walked once in a while. And then all of a sudden they were sitting together. And then Kirk is just distraught because Edith has to die. It seemed like it was all in about four pages in the comic book script. So it was much, much more condensed. In fact, I think Kirk discussing his feelings with Spock, his, his dis discussing his feelings for Edith with Spock was just as long 
is the whole sequence where he developed these feelings for Edith. So it was just earned more in the televised episode, I felt like. And, and you know, part of that could also be because of the nuance of, like you said, the chemistry between the actors as well. And I don't think you were misreading the... I, I thought it was a little hard to read, that scene where the, the stairway uh, scene in mm-hmm. the comic. I wasn't too sure what was happening there myself, whether Kirk was... I, I don't think you're misreading it. I think... Yeah, she starts to fall, and Kirk almost goes for her, and then lets her fall, and then doesn't... I'm not sure how that works in this version of the story. The the only thing that that came to mind with me was that that was the way he was illustrating that Kirk had developed feelings for her, obviously because of how the end differs from the televised show. At this point, he was more about duty, and he was willing to let her die. And then as their relationship developed, this this will change. Yeah, because in the broadcast version, the fact that he doesn't let her fall to Spock is an indicator that Kirk may well betray history. Yes. That he's uh, he's treading on uh, dangerous ground. And, uh, he cares about her enough to do that, that he's kind of lost in that. So that now we're thinking, whoa, uh, is Kirk going to sacrifice the show, <laughs> the Enterprise, for this woman? And of course, she might not have died. And in this version, she does fall and doesn't die. But uh, it still it makes us wonder. And I think that's a, probably a stronger way to do it. Because otherwise, you've got Kirk letting a woman fall down the stairs, which, you know, which isn't... Absolutely right. For your lead actor and heroic character, probably not what they were going to show and we'll we can talk about that exact same point as when we get to the part where the where they get to the end. So the next common point here is that Edith's survival is prevented and her death is assured. In the Ellison version, again we left them both sort of in the street here. In the Ellison version they go out into the street, they see Edith talking to a group of people. When she sees Kirk, who she has also become very affectionate for, obviously, she waves at him. She walks across the street going toward them, going unknowingly into the path of an oncoming truck. At that point, Beckwith also sees this. He comes out of hiding and runs to save Edith from getting hit by the truck. Kirk watches. He takes a step and doesn't move. Spock rushes out into the street and tackles Beckwith. And at that point, Edith is hit by the truck. In the televised version, the three primaries, as we left off with them, were reunited on the sidewalk, and they're all saying hello, they're glad to see each other. Edith, with a quizzitive look on her face, trying to figure out how these men know each other, begins to cross the street toward them, while a truck barrels down on her. McCoy sees what's happening. He moves to push Edith out of the way of the truck. Kurt grabs him and holds on to him, preventing him from getting to Edith. Edith is hit by the truck. Deliberately could have saved her. Do you know what you just did? He knows, Doctor. He knows. It gets me every time. So. Uh, me too. Every time I watch Oof. it. The acting by all the parties there is, I think, some of the best in the entire show. All the run of the original series. Oh, yeah. All three of the lead actors right there were great. So obviously we wouldn't change a single line. <laughs> no. I No. Not me. And, and, and the difference, of course, in the Ellison version, here again, Kirk decides to let Edith live. He's going to let time go in a different course. Um, so there's, there's these big questions, and this is wrapped up differently here. McCoy now saying, we obviously know why he would want to save Edith from getting hit by a truck. Right. But here, it's Beckwith who moves to save Edith. And this guy's a drug dealer. He's a murderer. He's on the lamb from these from Kirk and Spock, but yet he runs out to save Edith. And then Spock, when he sees that Kirk isn't going to stop Beckwith, Spock runs out in the street and knocks Beckwith out of the way. 
very different dynamic here. And kind of like we mentioned before, I can see where as the, the show had gone, they changed it because I don't know that they could have stomached Kirk not being the hero. Or maybe Shatner couldn't stomach Kirk not being the hero as well. I don't know. But at the same time, it's such a tragic hero moment in the broadcast yes. version. In here, Kirk is devoid of agency. You know, he's not doing it. He's not personally making the sacrifice, which I think is what works so well in the broadcast version. That's the reason right. we love that episode so much, I think, is the sacrifice that he makes. So here he doesn't make the sacrifice. He lets his second basically do it for him, and he's frozen, which isn't Kirk-like at all. No, he's the man of action. I will say, though, in the Ellisford, Kirk does make a sacrifice. is just the different sacrifice, meaning he's willing to sacrifice the time and everything he's known for Edith in either way. And I don't know if it's David Gerald who, who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, I was reading something he had written at one time. It may have been in his book, The World of Star Trek. I, I can't remember for sure. But he wrote about the best episode of Star Trek are the ones where a decision has to be made. There's a true sacrifice. He always talks about, well, Kirk gets in trouble. Well, that's not a real earth-shattering thing because you know they're going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. But this is that's why this is one of the, if not the greatest episode, is that there's a sacrifice. There has to be a decision, and that decision has consequences. No matter which decision he makes, he either gives up who presumably he feels is the love of his life or someone he loves or everything else that he's ever worked for and ever known. There's a, there's a substantial sacrifice here that has to be made. But it's a surprising choice, let's say, for, for the character that we know. That we know. Yeah. And also, I mean, okay, replace Beckwith and, with McCoy. McCoy in this isn't in the loop. So he doesn't know what's going on, right? and he doesn't understand what's going on. So it's also very shocking for him, and we like him. So yes. that whole scene takes on a lot more resonance for each of the characters that we know. Uh, with Beckwith, it's like the weird open question as to why this killer would save a woman. But then, why not? I mean, he's nobody's totally evil. And he is a Starfleet officer, uh, you know, and they're, you know, they're bred a certain way. And perhaps there's a difference to him. People who are, you know, the victims of his uh, drug peddling are not necessarily the same thing as, like, seeing a woman cross the street and almost get hit. But, you know, he just reacts. Right. And there may be a heroic strain in him, the, you know, a Starfleet astronaut kind of strain in him. Right. So it's all very, you know, it's possible. It's just... A little bit too enigmatic or ambiguous to add on top of everything else that's going on in the scene. And we'll and we'll revisit that here in, in two more segments. But you're right. To me, this is another area where Ellison, I think, was trying to make more of an abstract argument here. But in the character of Beckwith, like you said, we could assume this or assume that. But but there's he hasn't earned that in our eyes, as I, or at least my eyes as I read this. He hasn't earned that benefit of the doubt that he's a Starfleet officer, so he has this inherent sense of good. I don't know any of that about him. Yeah, no, especially since, uh, you know, he, he bashed a guy's head in. and Right, to, to protect himself. In front of other officers. He's not very smart at all. You know, it's not like uh, he didn't commit the perfect murder. It's re it was really like, okay, uh, if I do this, then my career is ended, pretty much. And I'm just going to go to this planet in the middle of nowhere where I have no idea what's down there. Yeah, it's, it's kind of... A, that'll save. Yeah, it's perhaps a, a weak point in the plot itself. The next point here, the the second to the last, and this, this is a very short one, although it's much shorter. These two, the last two, 
are very, very short in the televised episode, and they're elongated a little bit in the Ellison script. So the next one, the Enterprise crew members are returned to the relative present and to a restored timeline. In the Ellison version, Kirk, Spock, and Beckwith are returned to the Guardians. They say that time has resumed its shape. Spock asks about the cripple, and they say the cripple was negligible, and that's why his death didn't matter. At that point, Beckwith is within Spock's grasp. Beckwith breaks free of Spock and jumps back into the vortex. The Guardians say that the vortex can only be set for the same time once, and by jumping back into the vortex, he has created a fracture. He will be trapped in the vortex forever. His forever will be in the exploding heart of a sun, a nova, and that he has named his own doom. This is rendered quite graphically in the comic here about he sort of shows him spiraling into a spiral like Nova with his body sort of being destroyed and recreated over and over again. In the televised version, Kirk and Spock and McCoy are returned to the Guardian and the remaining crew members that are still there on the planet. Scotty makes a comment that, but you've only just left. Uhura says that the ship is signaling for transport. The Guardian says, Time has resumed its shape. All is as it was before. There's a little bit left in the televised version, which we'll talk about in in the Ellison version. (laughs) Yeah, very small, but crucial. So, so... Yes, but very crucial. So this, this again is very different in the sense that right away they, they do two things here. They find it necessary to punish Beckwith for his crimes and he sort of gets his comeuppance, if you, so to speak, by um, jumping into the vortex and being destroyed and recreated for all eternity. And they bring up again, they ask the question about the crippled man who had fought at Verdun and they say he was negligible. This again becomes sort of a, a talking point in the next segment of the Ellison script, whereas they just sort of come back, jump through the time thing and all is restored as it was. The one thing I found interesting, the televised version was, you know, the crew members make their comments and, and Kirk really doesn't say everything. Spock says something along the lines of we were successful. And the look, this is another great line. So presumably before they've come back, somehow Kirk and Spock have explained to McCoy what has happened because when Spock says we were successful, McCoy sort of gives him this look like, is Jim going to say something? Is that success? And he's kind of the way his eyes are darting, I think are great. How uh, DeForest Kelly plays that. Yeah. It's only the acting They don't need to say much. Yes. Very much an economy of words here. Yeah. And after that heavy, heavy moment, what can, what can be said? And I think that the less said, the better we're just left on this really unhappy ending and a pirate victory. Yes. Which the all the the epilogues and yeah the, we got more to to tell uh, all the epilogues in the Ellison script would just have I don't know it's it's like a lot of those episodes in the, the original series where it's got to end on a joke and yes. fake laughter yeah. yeah that's that's what I had here in my notes is that this I'll, I'll kind of go to this next point and that is the perfect segue into that so in the Ellison version Kirk is alone in his quarters and Spock comes to console Kirk about what has happened. And he tells Kirk that he could rest on Vulcan, um, his home planet, with its long nights and the sound of its silver birds. With his people on Vulcan, there is always time for rest. Spock wonders why Beckwith tried to save Edith, because there is this great human cruelty in him. Kirk was talking about this, about how there is great human cruelty, but even in the worst among us, there is the potential to do the the noble deed. In it is the spark of human godliness, the spark of God in humanity. And Spock says... Evil can come from good and good from evil. They muse at how little, how the little man was negligible, but that Edith was not. 
And Spock says, she was definitely not negligible. No woman was loved as much because Kirk was willing to give up the universe for her. And at the end of that, we see a shot of the Enterprise kind of flying back off into space, returning to its mission. In the televised version, of course, from the point we just left off, there's basically one more line. Kirk stands there and says, Let's get the hell out of here. And they beam up. And that's the end of the episode. And that's where it ends. And and like you, that was this was one of the lines... For them to say, let's get the hell out of here, they actually had to fight the censors to get to say that. To me, that is is much more powerful. It was very distinctly different from all the little, like you said, the little jokes at the end and the wink and the nod at Spock being the butt of a joke or McCoy being the butt of a joke or or even Kirk sometimes. This was a very different ending on the televised version. Yeah, it's a, it's a Deep Space Nine ending. <laughs> yes, it is. Is it, You're sort of left with, man, where do we, you're just kind of, you're left with the emotional punch. And not the jokey, okay, until next week kind of a thing. There is a, a dark, uh, a similarly downer ending in the um, original script. Uh, you didn't allude to it, but the artworks, I don't know if it's just the artwork or if it was actually in the script, but let's say it is. Because at the end, the difference here is that uh, the, the last scene is in Kirk's quarters. And uh, the quarters obviously hadn't been imagined uh, when he wrote the script, so it's got a porthole. It's got a window. And uh, once Spock leaves... Kirk's quarters, Kirk is looking out the window, and then as, as we sort of zoom out to, to eventually show the Enterprise, Kirk, there's a silent scream. He's just, he seems to be screaming. And he's literally staring off into space, sort of lost in his own thoughts. So it would have ended on this sort of primal, silent scream, mm -hmm. and then the Enterprise zooms away, you know, zoom out from the Enterprise, which is something we see today as far as effects go, uh, and then, you know, zoom out. And the adventure continues, but this man's soul has been broken. You know, there's yeah. So I mean, there's a, an echo of that here as well. There's no economy to it compared to the broadcast show. There's still something similar happening. One thing I wish that they would have done on either version of this is that they would have followed up on this because of the emotional punch. And I will tell you one thing that I always thought, and, and it never came to fruition, was in um, Star Trek Generations. Okay. When Kirk was in the string. And he was sort of in his happy place. I always wanted him, his happy place to be with Edith yeah. and have Joan Collins have a guest appearance in that. Yeah. I, I always wanted that so that there was some acknowledgement that this really, beyond the let's get the hell out of here and then Kirk seducing the, the next alien woman in three episodes later, that this really did have an impact on him. That's always what I wanted to see somewhere later on down the road. Well, I like the, um, let's call it a theory, but, you know, the, the shows aren't aired in order, you know, in the original series. And uh, because the, the, the star dates are all over the place. And sometimes you can actually tell there's, you know, the costumes or <laughs> the order is wrong. Right. Actually, some people have tracked this. But if you look at the star dates and just the other cues that tell you when this is happening within the five-year mission, Kirk is pretty tame. I mean, you know, Kirk, you know, he used to be like a, the shy, scholarly person until he got, uh, you know, we're guessing Carol Marcus sort of <laughs> got him out of his shell, you know, that kind of thing. One of the early, or Ruth. <laughs> or Ruth, yeah. So, um, so you get a lot of, and then, but Kirk is pretty. He he's not a Lothario in the early star dates. That's not part of his thing, uh, not really. And then he meets Edith, falls in love with Edith, and then the episodes that have star dates that are later than City on the Edge of Forever, he's like this guy trying to forget the woman he lost mm. by just jumping into bed with everyone. Yeah, it becomes a pathology. Where where again he's looking for something non meaningful because he lost to something meaningful. 
or some things meaningful that he had. Hmm, that's interesting. I like that. I think there's like a demarcation. You can actually do it within an order that makes sense in the canon of the show. And uh, that, you know, I mean, there's like Kirk before Edith and there's a Kirk after Edith and they're very different. And I, I don't think the show did that on purpose. You know, that's just right. your leading man is going to be having different love interests. Every episode is just part of television uh, at the time or even today, I guess. But, but yeah, but there's still a way to track it and say, okay, yeah, this person was special. Yeah, it would have been a better fit. Joan Collins is still around. She, she, I mean, she, she could easily have played um, Edith in uh, Generations. And I don't know budget-wise, but she she always spoken very highly in the interviews that I've seen of her her one episode of Star Trek. She really enjoyed it. She enjoyed Leonard Nimoy and uh, William Shatner and her experience there. So, you know, who knows? She Maybe she would have done it if, if they had asked. Seems like just a missed opportunity. Well, well. so uh, in, I, I guess that's it. Yeah. How do we wrap this up? Well, for me, I, I guess I just want to say Actually, I really enjoyed both of these versions. Like I said, in the end, I very much have a strong understanding of why it couldn't be or wasn't filmed the way the, this script of Ellison's was. There were just many things that were sort of hurdles there. And some of those were budgetary, but I think more of it was what you alluded to very early on, that it was just very different than Star Trek as it had even come to be portrayed by this time. By the time I think Ellison had finished his final his what he considered his final draft of the script. There'd already been, oh, I don't know how many episodes aired, like seven episodes had even aired, maybe not even counting how many other scripts they had in preparation to be filmed and or were filmed and not aired yet. But I will say that this IDW production of this is gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. Um, Woodward's art is uh, fan. Fantastic. He's very, yeah, he's very good with likenesses. He's done other projects uh, for for the for the company, of course. The Doctor Who Next Gen crossover, I think that's he did mm-hmm. the art on that as well. Yep. So yeah, and he's added a lot of little touches. <laughs> like for example, there's when they go through the portal, feels very much like a tribute to the uh, motion picture poster, movie poster. Have you noticed? Uh, like yeah. the rainbow. I mean that. Yeah, it feels like that. So there's a lot of little Easter eggs. Uh, some of them that they cop to in the back pages. In the back matter for this book. Yeah, yeah. and some of them that they don't. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting. And, of course, he, it's not like, yeah, there are some like major special effects that are added that probably wouldn't have looked like that on the show. But then also, the, I think he, he respects the look of it as well. Not just the actors, oh, yeah. the dress. The, it still looks like the, the backlot version of New York. So uh, it's respectful of the original material. And as the Tipton brothers say in the back pages, they really wanted to just do the script, not add very much to it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a very good document. You could also get the, the scripts, you know, to read, but it's a visual medium TV, and so is comics. So it's a good fit. I agree, and that you know, I, the first time I came across Ellison's script was in he wrote a book. I think it was called The City on the Edge of Forever, published in around 1996. That was before the internet, and or at least the internet for me. And I was unaware of any of that, you know, butting heads between Roddenberry and Ellison and and the issues over the script and that the original script had been different. So when I when I read that script, I kind of thought the same thing. Well, that doesn't seem right or that doesn't seem right. But I like the idea that, like you said, in the television was a visual medium. This was a visual medium. And I felt like it lent for a lot better comparison than just looking at a script on the page as compared to the televised scripted version. 
which I liked a lot. You get more of a sense of pacing and and, yes. and exactly it, it just feels five issues, uh, you know, it's like more than 100 pages of comics. That's probably longer than your 45, 50 minute episode of Star Trek. Probably. Yeah, I, I would say that it probably was. I think, you know, if people have read the back and forth with Ellison's version, Roddenberry's version, I think if people are interested, you know, really in reading that, there's a really good if, if people are familiar with the book called These Are the Voyages, the original series, uh, season one, it goes into that quite a lot. And I think it gives a very even handed account of all the back and forth and the script and the rewriting and how that whole process went into the production of this particular episode and, and talks about both. At one point, you know, Roddenberry said, well, Ellison had Scotty dealing drugs in the in, in the Enterprise, and I just couldn't have that. Well, that's not exactly it. Yeah. No, Scotty wasn't even in Ellison's script, nor was Uhura, nor was McCoy, nor were a lot of the regulars. So that wasn't exactly true. But there was a drug dealer, you know, and, and, and so there, there was a lot of things that went back and forth that were they were interesting reading, but they don't change my love for the televised version and they don't change my respect for this scripted version in this comic. And there's a lot of, uh, like you, I sort of heard about it at some point. And, and, and for the longest time, I thought, oh, I, you know, they had like a character shooting up heroin or. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, obviously they couldn't show that on TV, you know, uh, back in the 60s. Yeah. So uh, it even makes you wonder. They just had him taking this drug and they had then in the comic book version they had a like a psychedelic look to it it makes you wonder what the censors if the censors weren't going to let him say let's get the hell out of here would they even let someone show him swallowing this jewel drug or whatever you know but i don't know at the same time we do see the beauty drug in uh, mud's women well that's true and mud's yeah mud's women yeah sometimes it depends on context is it something that's too close to reality you know it's it's kind of like the comics code it's flexible you know it depends how they sell it that week yeah exactly (laughs) so but yeah the word hell is a problem then a lot of the script might have been a problem as well you know right (laughs) oh well all right i think we've um we've done it we've covered we've succeeded we've come back yes all is as it was yes (laughs) and maybe if you listen to the podcast again uh, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln. Yes, that's right. That's you know, right. History is on track. <laughs> I, I want again. I want to thank Ryan Daly for giving me the book just out of the blue some months ago. Ryan Daly is apparently a focal point in time because he was the one who first. I was that was my first guest appearance was on Ryan Daly's Midnight the Podcasting Hour as well. So he apparently is some sort of focal point in all this. See, so don't go back in time and you know let something happen to Ryan Daly. He's necessary to this. Uh, and, of course, I want to thank you, Scott, uh, not only for spending this uh, hour and a half with me, but uh, for you know, really taking on the narration chores, because uh, as people can hear, my voice is a little bit um, hurting here. I'm, I'm still there will be a bunch of episodes that, where, where my voice is, is pretty bad. Uh, because of a cold I've had. So thank you, Scott, for that. My pleasure. And are, is there anything you'd like to plug before uh, you have to go back through The Guardian? I, I don't have too much to plug. I am newly on Twitter, so I do actually have something to say as to where people can find me. My handle is at the mind of Scott X. I do have a couple projects that are in the works and have been in the works for a long time, and hopefully sometime I'll actually get back to them and get them done. Um, I do have a couple more podcast appearances coming up here on the fire and water network uh, one will be upcoming on the mash cast nice. and one um i will keep under my hat oh. uh, for now at the request of the host because um, we don't know when it's going to happen and it may tie into another um, project that he is working on and may want to tie it in there so i don't want to spill the beans on that one so 
That is coming up. What are my fire and water podcast partners hiding from me? You you may already know, but I don't know what the, if the listeners need to be privy to that yet. But do I listen when they talk? Yes, and, that's always the question. Hmm, who knows? Uh, I'll let you go back through time uh, to your native time zone. Very good. Yes. My chronometers seem to be back on track here, too. I don't think they're running backwards anymore. So Okay, so we're uh, the timelines are adjusting. I'll stick around for after this promo. We'll do subspace transmissions. Star Trek news and your feedback. It's midnight, the podcasting hour. From fetid swamps to creepy castles, the podcasting hour is your home for horror on the Fire and Water Network. Join me, PJ Frightful, on this quarterly anthology podcast that gazes into the mysterious and terrifying shadows of DC Comics. The moon is full and the bell tolls for midnight, the podcasting hour. Incoming subspace transmissions. In Star Trek news, let's start close to home and announce a special Gimme That Star Trek contest that concerns the next episode. May's episode of Gimme That Star Trek will pit 64 Trek heroes from across all series in a bracket fight decided by five panelists, myself included, and you can win Fire & Water merch if you guess the most slots correctly. You'll find the bracket grid at fireandwaterpodcast.com uh, in the show stream and in this episode's image gallery. Grab a copy of the sheet, fill it out until it names a winner, and send it to me, the email is included, before April 30th to enter. One point per slot correctly entered, ties broken by coin flip or dice throw, identity of panelists secret, until transmission, their criteria, whether it's historical importance, look, personality, originality, personal preference, whatever, is entirely their own. Winner announced in Subspace Transmissions in May's episode. Good luck! Star Trek Discovery's Jason Isaacs is scheduled to headline next year's Star Trek The Cruise when the annual event sets sail for the third time next January. The Cruise is sort of a six-day sailing convention departing from Miami and includes alumni from every iteration of Trek except the original series. So if you always wanted Lorca to be your captain, this is your chance. Duolingo's online language courses have added Klingon to its possible curricula. Look forward to practicing on the bus and scaring the normals. I don't normally cover celebrity gossip, but this Star Trek wedding is notable. Terry Farrell, Dax on Deep Space Nine, got married to Leonard Nimoy's son Adam last week, on Leonard Nimoy's birthday, in fact. And Discovery has been nominated for five Saturn Awards, the prizes awarded by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. The five nominations are for Best New Media Television Series, uh, Sonequa Martin-Green for Best Actress on a Television Series, Jason Isaacs for Best Actor on a Television Series, Doug Jones for Best Supporting Actor on a Television Series, and Michelle Yeoh for Best Guest Starring Performance on a Television Series. Now on to your feedback from episode 19, in which I and Ryan Blake discussed The Borg. Well, uh, let's start with J. David Weeder, who says, Cisco's observation of the Borg's evolution blew my mind. I had always thought of them as static antagonists, but the organic, no pun intended, path that the writers subtly weaved is now apparent. If indeed that was not just accidental. 
Vera Wilde says, I know you made the very valid comparison to the Cybermen, but at this point I feel that I have to compare them to something like the Weeping Angels. The core concept is so simple and effective that each time you bring them back, your only options are to either rehash what was done or start messing with what was established. New wrinkles, new abilities, new information. And that almost always ends up diluting the power of the original simple concept. The Borg were strung along for far too many stories. Excellent point, Vera. Uh, David S. Gutierrez says, I was impressed as well. Well done. Thank you. Uh, Rob Kelly says, wonderful episode. And Ryan was a fine guest. Can't wait to steal him for one of my shows. Uh, I think he's been trying to contact you, Rob. And uh, I wonder, he says, if the new Trek films would ever use the Borg as bad guys, or are they still considered TNG only? Now that we're all in a different timeline, I would argue all Trek is open to Kirk, Spock, etc., or would Trek fans rebel? No, I don't think they'd be they'd, they'd rebel. I think that'd be the the chance to see the original characters, if not cast, up against modern Trek's big bad. So Taran says, with the Borg, collective versus individuality can still look at bees for an example. Honeybees have personalities, sort of. Sontaran leaves a link to Discover magazine that explains this point. Look it up in the comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Uh, Mark Baker Wright says, while it is true that the Borg, as they finally made it to screen, looked like a ripoff of the Cybermen from Doctor Who, even the original insectoid concept would have ended up resembling the Warren. One way or another, the Borg were pretty much doomed to be Doctor Who alien ripoffs. Uh, Chris Franklin says, great episode, Siskoid and Ryan, some fascinating ruminations on the Borg, and I like Siskoid's no prizes to explain away the inconsistencies. And yes, those Shatner novels are a bit ridiculous, but history and multiple episodes prove Kirk probably would have talked the Borg into destroying themselves in less than 60 minutes, minus commercials. Good observation about Janeway as well. I hate to say this, but I sometimes think the desire to portray the first lead female captain as a competent hero got the writers in a lot of trouble, making her an unlikable superwoman who had to always be right. To create conflict, they had her crew disagree with her, hence the unlikable part. I completely agree with that, Chris. I think she got a raw deal, really. It just became so strident instead of letting her just be a Starfleet captain and just, you know, it would all work itself out. Uh, Brian Linton says, Thank you for another thought-provoking episode. I particularly like Ryan's philosophical argument that the Borg are not necessarily evil villains. Upon further reflection, I agree with him, but as a biologist would put forward a biological argument. If the Borg are truly a collective, then one can think of the Borg as single living organisms. The organism would need to eat, i.e. assimilate other species to grow, i.e. to add biomass through the addition of new drones, and to survive, i.e. evolutionary adaptation through the assimilation of new technology rather than through mutation. If a lion kills and eats me, he snuffs out my individuality and assimilates my matter into his body, but I wouldn't call the lion evil. I think the same could be argued for the Borg, and there does not appear to be any malevolent or hurtful intent behind their actions. I think this argument holds true for the Borg as they first appeared in TNG. Once you introduce the Borg Queen as the guiding mind of the collective in first contact, all this goes out the window. She appears to be self-aware, possessing free will and agency, which means she theoretically could choose a different way for the Borg to exist. In my mind, it's at this point that the Borg cease to be a giant organism feeding to survive and become evil villains. Uh, then we have Paul Hicks, who says, not much of a Star Trek fan. Thank you for your patronage anyway, Paul. Uh, but remember the TNG Borg eps as being very cool. It does seem, as with Doctor Who, that two appearances of a foe is the magic number before they become diminished as a concept and threat. Tim Price says, well done, gentlemen. You covered the Borg extremely thoroughly and brilliantly. Thank you. 
Well, thank you, Tim. And Ice D says, I truly appreciate your ability to explain or attempt to explain the myriad inconsistencies in Star Trek instead of crossing your arms and shouting, not canon. It's all canon, man. Uh, this was an excellent episode, and give me that Star Trek is easily the best Trek podcast in my feed. Haven't checked your feed to know if, if that's a, a big compliment or not. Uh, also, shout-outs to Ryan Daly, who wrote in to talk about Star Wars novels for some reason, and Paul and Casey for dating Bajor's entry into the Federation to the novel Unity. So if you're looking for that major event, it doesn't happen on the show, it happens in the books. Facebook likes and shares from Abel Padilla, Brian Linton, D. Bash, Derek William Crabb, J. David Weeder, uh, Jared West, Jennifer Lee Breyer, Carol Hesry, Lucien Desart, Martin Gray, Max Romero, who the Borg are possibly his favorite Trek bad guys, he says, uh, Mike Gillis, who thinks they sound Swedish, mm -hmm. uh, Next Generation's First Generation Podcast, Pat Sampson, Paul Keane, Ryan Blake, Ryan Daly, Sean Emmons, Shag Matthews, Cy Rose, uh, and on Google+, Plus, uh, The Hammer Strikes. On Twitter, retweets and favorites from Andrew Searles, Andrew Wall, Ange, Chris, Chris D, Chris Lewis, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, David Byer Jr., Dean Robert Willits, Earth 2 Chris, Hokoff, the irredeemable shag of Firestorm fan, J. David Weeder, Joanne Nelson, Crap Tonight, Longbox Crusade, Longbox of Darkness, Max Romero of It's Plastic Man, Nitsitapi 3, Rad Adventures, Randall Andrews, Rob Kelly, creative of Digest Cast, Film and Water Podcast, Host of Sads, Pod Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, Treasury Comics, and Mashcast, Ross Michaud, Ryan Blake, Scott X, C. Riles, who says, great discussion, guys, some deep dives there. Another thing that bothers me is how it is that the Borg have a personal shield against phaser fire after adapting, but not against close combat. Luckily for Data and Worf. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Tim Price, Trickonomics, Trickbots. We welcome our robot overlords. Willie Yarbrough, Winter Warlock, Pedzilla, WWDW RPG Podcast, and Zoom Yukonori. As usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcast. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs>